Hi, friends. Thanks for listening to the Campus Ministry Sermon Podcast. On this night, our recording glitched and started a little late. Thankfully, though, we still have most of the recording from the sermon. Really, all we're missing is Scott Stark just setting the scene for the night. He's talking about King Solomon from 1 Kings chapter 11. Enjoy. He was inaugurated king of Israel at 20 years old. He offers a thousand bulls to the Lord as a fellowship offering, as a sign of his devotion. Now, monetarily speaking, today's terms, bulls cost roughly $4,000. I don't know this. I had to look them up on the exchange. Uh, they go for about $4,000 each. 4,000 bulls, or excuse me, 1,000 bulls, $4,000 each, $4 million. $4 million offering day one of his reign as a fellowship offering of gratitude to God. That was quite a barbecue, friends. Solomon loved God. And God loved Solomon. In fact, God says to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3, right around that same time, God says, Solomon, ask me for whatever you want, and I will do it for you. Dude, who wants a blank check from God? Right? Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And Solomon's reply is, Lord, give me a discerning heart to rule your people with justice and fairness. And God gives him what he asked for and more. Solomon gives wisdom, wealth, peace in the land. God even assigns to Solomon the ultimate task. Build me a house in Jerusalem. God's people have been dwelling in the tabernacle, have been worshiping in the tabernacle since the days of Moses, which we talked about last semester, right? The tabernacle was at the center of hundreds of years of Israel's history. Now, for the very first time, God says, my people dwelt in tents, I dwelt in a tent. Now that my people are settled and there's a kingdom and there's a, uh, there's a place for my people to live, put a house for me here. I'm here to stay. I'm moving in. Build me a house, Solomon. So Solomon puts his, everything he has into the task. He builds a glorious house for the Lord in Jerusalem. Something happens to Solomon along the way. It starts, like the narrator of 1 Kings, you really could read it, uh, chapters 1 through 11, it's phenomenal. And the narrator does a, phenom- a really excellent job of just weaving things in along the way that make you say, wait, wait a minute, what happened there? For example, 1 Kings, right in chapter 3, right after we realize, we read this promise that God makes to Solomon, we actually find out that Solomon made an alliance with the king of Egypt and married his daughter. Now, pop quiz time, do you remember who the people were who enslaved the Israelites hundreds of years before? Come on, y'all, help me out here. Egypt, thank you. Egypt. And God actually says to Moses, when I establish you in the land, when there's a king over you, never, ever under any circumstances go back to Egypt and make an alliance with them because they enslaved my people. It was a politically advantageous thing for him to do. And yet it was against the will of God. Hmm. Well, we keep reading a little bit farther. Solomon builds this amazing temple. It's incredible. It's huge. It's big. It's beautiful. It's glorious. And then in 1 Kings chapter 6, it tells us everything that he did to build God's temple. All the stone, the gold, the timber. He spared no expense for this house of God. And then 
with the temple of God as the center of Jerusalem, the pinnacle place where God's people would come to dwell. If you walk into Jerusalem, the very first thing you're going to take note of, right in the center of everything, the temple of God is here. This is where he dwells. Oh, and by the way, the author says, Solomon built himself a house too. And it was twice as big. And it cost twice as much. And it took twice as long to build. So now, when you walk into Jerusalem in that time, the temple of God was not the center. It was not the most glorious thing. Solomon's house was. The temple of Solomon. Huh. The trouble continues to be revealed in 1 Kings chapter 9 and 10 as the narrator lists all these activities and these assets that Solomon has. And if you know the Torah, God's law, the words that God gives to Moses for the king of Israel says don't acquire a whole bunch of um, personal wealth for yourself. Don't acquire a whole bunch of weapons of war because I'm not a military people. Don't do all these things. And guess what Solomon's doing? All of these things. And now the clincher. First Kings chapter 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth. Dang. 300 concubines. And his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, and Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. And the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I'll tear it out of the hand of your son. But I won't tear the whole kingdom from him either. I'll give him one tribe. For the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. This is the word of the Lord. the one who built the temple of God had become an idolater. How can that happen? How do you go from offering a thousand bulls of sacrifice to the Lord to offering sacrifices to Molech and Shemosh, which we know from history has included child sacrifice? 
Like the one who built the temple of God as a 20-year-old man is building temples to Shemosh and Moloch and Ashtoreth as a 50-year-old man. How can that happen? I'll tell you. One decision at a time. Every time. And friends, if it can happen to a guy like Solomon, who had the Lord appeared to him twice, had everything, had everything laid out before him, if it can happen to him, then this is a warning for us. For those of you who are uh, Christians, I bet that there's been a time in your life when you have said deeply and sincerely, I love you, God. And you've heard God say back to you, I love you, child. Maybe that was in a moment of conversion. Maybe that was recently at the Passion Conference. Maybe that's when you were baptized and you've been hearing this over and over and over your whole life. God speak his word of love to you. But like Solomon, there's a point when you would have offered a thousand bulls as an offering to say to God how much you loved him. Maybe it was when you first became a Christian and you would have gone through hell itself if anything stood in between you and Jesus. Maybe for some of you, you just went to the Passion Conference a few weeks ago and I know some of you were there and you said, Lord, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, I am all in. And then you came back home and I'll be darned if everything back here was just the way it was when you left it. The roommate issues were there. Family issues were there. Classes were there. Work was there, and none of that was any different. And that fire that was burning so hot in you at Passion is already starting to get down to a flicker. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And you start to make one decision at a time away from God and away from God's ways for your life. It's rare for any of us to make a decision to take some giant turn away from God. That's not how love usually works. In fact, I do uh, quite a bit of premarital counseling for young couples who meet in campus ministry and they fall in love and they want to get married just as they graduate. And uh, a lot of premarital counseling in that circumstance, maybe that'll be you someday. You know, you do, people do meet at the well, I'm just saying. Um, do a lot of premarital counseling because of that. And I'll tell you one thing I've never heard. I have never heard a young couple who are deeply in love say to me, Scott, I can't wait for the day when I break my uh, covenant with my new spouse and have an affair. That's going to be awesome. <laughs> but it happens. I have yet to have uh, a, a person come up to me and say, Scott, I passionately loved Jesus yesterday, but I just woke up today and I decided I'm out. I'm not interested anymore. I'm done with all this. It doesn't usually happen that way. It's always more subtle than that, isn't it? It always starts with a smaller decision, a decision that seems like not that big of a deal at the time. But in the journey of our heart being, from being fully devoted to God to this journey of being something completely different, it's never one big decision. It's one decision at a time that leads us from being deeply and fully devoted to the Lord our God to something completely different. And it frequently starts when we are most successful 
in our life and in our faith. I've seen this so many times. Let me tell you two stories from my own life that have deeply shaped how I understand this and how I read this story even. Story one, I did not grow up Christian. Uh, I grew up deeply pagan uh, in a very anti-Christian, anti-religion family. Uh, Nonetheless, God's uh, grace, which uh, always overrides my capacity to comprehend it, Uh, And even to to take hold of it, it's so good and it's so rich. God's grace pursued me, brought me to himself through a series of very unusual and strange circumstances. And in that time, I landed in a church. um, And in that church, there was a guy named Jim. Jim taught adult Sunday school. I was a teenager at the time. The youth group thing, I was like, eh, but Jim was awesome. Jim was a building contractor. He didn't even have a high school education. But Jim loved God. And Jim loved the Bible, and he taught the adult Sunday school class, so I was going to the adult Sunday school class. I showed up early, and I'd ask Jim questions because of stuff I'd read the week before. I don't know if he was used to people actually reading the material in advance, but I was reading it, and I was showing up. So let's, can, what about this thing? What about this thing? And then after class, I'd stay after. Sometimes I, me and Jim would be late for service because I'd be like, okay, walk me through this. Love your enemy. Go. I don't get that. Right? One day, Jim wasn't there. And I thought, I mean, everybody gets sick. He's a building contractor. People get sick, right? You know, it just happens. No big deal. I show up next week. Jim's not there. Then I realized something ain't right. I was a real sharp kid, you know. So I asked some of the adults who were there. And every time I would ask, they'd all act really squirrely like adults do when there's information they don't want to tell you. Like, uh, uh, well, we're not really sure what's going on there. Oh, but squirrel, right? They just kept trying to distract me. I'm like, nobody's telling me the straight truth here. So during the service on one of those Sundays, um, I look over and Jim's wife is just broken down. And so I look over to my grandma, who had also been called by God's irresistible grace uh, in a later part of her life, and I say, all right, tell me what's going on. And so she says, Jim had an affair with another woman in the church, and they have left and moved to another state together. Then I started crying. What? How? Like, Jim was the best Christian I knew. Let me tell you a second story. When I was in college... Uh, and was pursuing Jesus, uh, I had the opportunity to go to our campus ministry. I had a month-long training school uh, up north. It was kind of like passion for a whole month. It was great. Um, and it was right on the, uh, the coast of the lake. Uh, so it was pretty fantastic. And I was up there, and every week we'd, be going, we'd go through spiritual practices and different kind of ministry skill training. And then at night we had these amazing speakers that would come in and preach. Uh, and one of the speakers that was there preached through the book of Judges Uh, and Ruth, and he was unbelievable, like fire every night, so good. And I remember thinking in that time, if I was ever a pastor, which was not on my radar, if I was ever a pastor, I'd want to be like that, because his ability to take God's word, open it up, and explain it in a way that made sense that I understood, and that cut to the heart was so powerful, that at the end of the week, I went to the book table thing, man, I bought all the books, I bought the cassette tapes. Some of y'all know what a cassette tape is, come on now. I bought the cassette tapes. If you don't, look it up. Google. Hey, Google, what's a cassette tape? It'll be okay. 
I bought them all. Two months later, my pastor calls me. Scott, I don't want you to get this uh, secondhand, but the pastor, I won't tell you his name. I don't want to slander. Uh, he just left his wife and his kids and uh, is now becoming open about a long-term relationship he's had with his research assistant. Again? Are you kidding me? How? How can this happen to someone who loves God and loves the Bible so much? I'll tell you how. One decision at a time. These were shocking, heart-breaking events in my life. But the longer I live, the more I realize how very ununique these were. Some of you have had this story played out with your parents. You had a parent that taught you, took you, to, uh, took you to church, told you about how much they love you, how you should love God, how you should pursue God, and then come to find out there was an affair, there was an addiction, there was some deep lie living in their lives that has had devastating effects and rippled throughout your family. One decision at a time. Every time. On a larger scale, the avalanche of sin that has been exposed through the Me Too movement has been a revelation of the pervasive and egregiously sinful acts of those particularly in Christian leadership. If you want to span out a little bit wider, let's think about the historical reality of Christians who were actively engaged in things like slavery. Let's talk about Christians who espoused the great virtues of Jim Crow South or the many Christian leaders who condemned the work of civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. We can look back on them in history and say, wow, what was wrong with those guys? How could they do something like this? It's not a bad question. A better question might be, though, for us right here, right now, right here today. Friends, as the story of your life unfolds, where's the spotlight shining? When the narrator says her heart was not fully devoted to the Lord her God. Friends, those decisions we make one at a time, the ones we think are not a big deal, those decisions over a long period of time, lead us to be places that we could never imagine. That's what we see with Solomon. 20-year-old Solomon could never have guessed where 50-year-old Solomon ended up. Not a chance. 20-year-old Solomon was building a house for God so that the worship of God, the presence of God, would be the center of the people of God. 50-year-old Solomon was building Idols on high places outside the presence of God in places that took people away from the presence of God. 20-year-old Solomon was calling people to follow God fully. 50-year-old Solomon was the cause for the destruction of an entire nation. And he could have never imagined it when he was 20. And he got there one decision at a time. The Lord is furious with Solomon. We can hear that in verse 11. 
So the Lord says to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will tear this kingdom away from you and I will give it to one of your subordinates. Can you feel the jealousy in God? The jealousy for someone that he loved who had turned his back on him. And yet, God doesn't actually do what he says he's going to do. That's the most interesting thing about this story. God says, I will tear this kingdom away from you, but then he backpedals. Verse 12 and 13 have a really big but in them. God loves big butts. I can't lie. Some of y'all like to deny. (laughs) Verse 12, it's got such a big butt that it gets translated nevertheless. That's extra large. (laughs) Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. I won't tear the whole kingdom away from him, though, I'll give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Isn't that interesting? Don't see God backpedal often. No, God doesn't say to Solomon that because you built the temple, you got a little equity with me. No, no, no. God pronounces judgment on Solomon. The question is, why does God relent? Solomon is a traitor. He deserves to be sentenced like a traitor. But he relents. Because the traitor is David's son. Solomon the traitor gets off because of who his daddy is. Whatever. But maybe there's more to this, huh? See, because there's another person in the story, friends who's called the son of David. There's another person in Scripture who's referred to by this name. He didn't grow up in a palace like Solomon did. No, he was born in a makeshift guest room that you keep animals in. This other son of David, he didn't have a massive palace. In fact, Scripture says he has no place to lay his head. This other son of David, when he rode through the gates of Jerusalem, he wasn't on a great white horse and chariot. No, he was on a small donkey. And yet, when people gathered around him, what did they shout? Hosanna, son of David. No, God showed mercy, friends, to Solomon, the traitor's son. Because there was another son of David coming. And one decision at a time, that son's heart would not turn away from God. It would be fully devoted from small things like turning a stone into bread to big things like being offered the splendor of Solomon. Jesus refused to give his devotion to anyone but God. God had mercy on Solomon, the son of David, ultimately, because this is not Solomon's story. It's God's story. It's the story of God's unfolding grace 
as he moves toward the redemption of his people and the unfolding of restoration of the world. And nothing will stop that ongoing march of God's victory over sin and his destruction of evil. Oh, friends, there is hope in this. There is hope in this, friends, for a God who showed mercy to a traitor like Solomon because he was David's son would also show mercy to us. Traitors though we are, because of Jesus Christ, the true son of David. The real tragedy of Solomon's story is that he traded in the pursuit of God in God's glory for just a little temporary success. And he ended up losing both. You can't have two masters, Jesus would later teach. If you chase success, you might get it. You might get it. But if you chase God and pursue his glory, you will find an eternal glory far exceeding any temporal success you might find. Christ has removed all barriers that block sinful people from coming into the presence of God, but just like any romance that will stand the test of time, God is not satisfied with half-hearted devotion. God is not satisfied with, I like you some. I'll give you half. Who's going for that proposal, ladies? Huh? I'll give you, you know, 50-50 maybe, my time, my interest, my love. But I got this other thing going on over here. Nobody's going for that. Certainly not the God of the universe. He wants all of you. Will you be a fully devoted lover of God? Because the good news is, friends, that just like idolatry, pursuing God is something you do one decision at a time. One decision at a time to tear down the idols in your life and to turn your heart to the Lord. One decision at a time to embrace Christ and his ways. One decision at a time to be fully devoted to the Lord your God. I don't want to miss God's glory in my life. And I don't want you to miss it either. For Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. And what he means by that is that you would have a life lived God's way for God's glory to God's incredible redemption until he makes all things new, just like you were created for. Do you want that life? You're going to have to make one radical decision at a time toward God and toward his glory. We're going to give an opportunity to do that tonight through a song of prayer and redemption. And as that song is sung, the worship team is going to be coming up in just a moment, but as that song is sung, if you look at the end of all of your rows over here and over here under the green chair, you'll see uh, pens and small pieces of paper. I'd love if you grab, those of you at the end of the row, grab that and just pass it down the row. And during the song, you'll be invited to sit and ask the Holy Spirit, what are the idols in my life that are turning my heart away from being fully devoted to God? And as the Holy Spirit reveals those things to you, maybe God has already done that, as he reveals those things to you, write them down on that paper. 
And then as we sing this song and you're writing these things down, you're going to be invited to come forward. I'm going to bring it, quite literally, I'm going to bring a trash can from the back. We're going to set it right here. You're going to be invited to take that idol, that thing that's drawing your heart away from God, crumple that thing up and put it where it belongs. We're smashing idols here tonight, y'all. Bring it forward and throw it away. Let those chains be broken and be set free from those things that hold you tight and draw you away from God. So as we, as we sing, write it down. Bring it forward. And don't wait for somebody else, okay? Be first. Be the first one to say, I am deciding one decision at a time. I am making this decision to throw down my idols and to take up the cross of Christ. Friends, let's be people who pursue God wholeheartedly. Amen? Let me pray for us. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we are grateful for your word, and we're grateful that it always comes to us with power. But Lord, your word cuts us. And so for those of us, God, who who are experiencing the surgical work of your Holy Spirit right now, we pray. Lord, those places that you're cutting us open to expose in the infection of sin in our life and the things that are drawing us away from you that literally lead to death, Expose those things in us, God. And then do the healing work that only you can do by cutting those things out of us so that we can see them, so that we can name them, and so that they can be discarded and thrown in where they belong in the garbage. God, do this work in us. Reveal those things to us and give us the courage to, take, to make one decision tonight to throw down those idols so that we might fully embrace a heart that is fully devoted to you. We ask that in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.